welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Rizika. And I'm Andreas Lorente. And every week on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch an old movie, we watch a new movie, we talk a lot about both of them, trying to draw some connections. And this week I'm a little confused because I feel for some reason like I saw the same film twice. James, <laughs> comment. What happened How to me? How can that be possible? This, this, this week we are comparing uh, The Killer, the new David Fincher film, uh, with uh, The Killer, the uh, the John Woo film from 1989. I've been racking my brains trying to think of a way to distinguish them. So I think we have to call The Killer the Fincher feature. Oh. Uh, whereas okay. uh, the, the old killer from 1989 should be the Woo Show, I think. Oh. That's that's the best I can come up with. The Woo Show. Do the, in Canada, I think they say the Woo Shoe. The Woo Shoe. There you Shoo. go. See, we, like yeah, we should be based in Canada for so many reasons. Absolutely. I, I wrote a little intro, which is just says that, you know, do you need bullets? Because we've got bullets in this <laughs> week's episode. I reckon, I reckon that um, there are more bullets in this episode of the podcast than we have seen in every other episode of the podcast so far combined. Yep. Um, absolutely incredible number of bullets in these two uh, these two films. Uh, we, we watched uh, an interesting video um, earlier this week about declining birth rates. I'm sure it's something you've heard about, the future population crash that we've all got to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. And I think if the real world was anything like these films, declining birth rates would not be the primary reason for falling <laughs> population numbers. Because seriously, a few weeks of films like this and there'd just be nobody left. Yeah. So many bullets, so the, many the bullets. Bu- the bullets are still ringing in my brain. And I watched one of these films <laughs> More than two weeks ago, I think so. <laughs> a lot of bullets. <laughs> so a lot of bullets. Well, let's um, let's let's start with the newest of the two films, The Killer Twenty Twenty Three. It is the Fincher feature, directed by David Fincher. Do you like David Fincher? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I, there are a couple of films I love. I really loved um, Seven, which was sort of one of the one of the early ones, right? Mm. Um, but. I will confess, boy, I might as well come out right now. This is a safe space. Do you guys have safe spaces in the UK? I think in the UK we have boring spaces, but okay. it amounts to about the same thing. Okay. Okay. Well, sort of. Yeah, safe space <laughs> is definitely boring, but it's also a place where you feel like you can speak openly. I think you guys are more, uh, I don't know, uh, you're better at biting the stiff upper lip or whatever the heck it is. And here <laughs> we're talking about We, we never talk about what we actually feel or think in this there country. That would be wow. dreadfully rude. I have to admit, I, I was not a very big fan of this or of the Fincher films. And the last <laughs> one was Mank. Do you remember Mank? I think that's the last one I remember. So that That is one of the Fincher films I have not seen. I made okay. a little list of, of his films and there's two that I have not seen. Uh, okay. And Mank is one of them. So honestly, Mank, um, I did not finish. I watched what I think was the first act, basically, and never went back to it was watching for my good buddy and, and friend of the pod, Michael Primer, who worked on that one. And then honestly, I think were it not for the pod, I probably would not have finished this film either. <laughs> so, that just shows proper dedication to the art. Exactly. And I feel safe talking to my community about that right now. I'm being forthright, honest. I'm not much of a Fincher fan. I thought Social Network was pretty good. I think he's a super talented director. I just don't know that he's always um, told great stories. And the last couple films, I think, are pretty weak. But we'll be going into some detail about at least, uh, what do we call it? The Fincher feature. The Fincher uh, here feature. Soon. Yes. Uh, so I, I I have seen most of his films apart from Mank uh, yeah. and uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which which yeah. passed me by. But otherwise, yep, Alien 3, his first feature. Oh, right. Fight Club. Seven. Yeah, the game, Fight Club, yeah. Panic Room, um, Zodiac, The Social Network, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. I, I 
broadly enjoyed all of them. Okay, good. I, I do find his films um, watchable. I think they have that cold technical aspect to yes. them, which, which sort of reminds me a bit of Hitchcock. But I enjoy those Hitchcock films as well. So yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about this um, in a minute. It's written by Andrew Kevin Walker, mm. uh, who also wrote Seven, or at least he contributed. Yeah, no, he wrote Seven. That's it. Um, I think he's he's uh, largely a script doctor these days. He wrote yeah. Sleepy Hollow. I don't know whether you ever saw that. That's ancient. Uh, Eight Millimeter. I don't know whether you saw that. Mm, it's a very, very exploitative early Nick Cage picture. Yeah. Um, otherwise, he's mostly a rewrite guy these days. But it is. Based... I was just going to say, what about Windfall? Because I think we talked about Windfall <laughs> a year and a half ago or so. The film with Jesse Plemons was in there, and um... <gasps> do you remember? Ah, oh, yes. I think yes. That's oh, he wrote that. Oh, yes. oh man, I didn't put two and two together. You're right. Yeah. So he's been out there. okay. Well, okay. So he is still making. Writing original material, and I rather enjoyed that film. Actually, there are, for, you know, for a, a very small three-handed yeah. uh, little feature, that was good fun. There are two other writers credited here. What do you know about them? Alexis Nolent and Lucas Giacomon. Giacomon, French. So these these guys, they, see, these guys are French. They have they they write under the name of Mats, uh-huh. um, and they are the authors of the graphic novel oh. on which the film is based. Um, so they are yeah French graphic novel writers uh they have also uh written a graphic novel with david fincher of the black dahlia dahlia or dahlia dahlia what's that, what's uh, that flower called? dahlia here dahlia. yeah flower i, I think it right? okay. might be dahlia in the uk possibly yeah clearly it's going to be dahlia isn't it um so i think uh fincher originally got interested in making a film of the graphic novel the killer mm-hmm. um, and then worked with these two guys to make a graphic novel of their own uh, which is based on the james elroy story so they have some history together yeah so they do get a credit on this and um true to form um I've read the book this week, or at least I read. I read like the first two volumes of the book. I borrowed Ooh. it from the library, and it is a massive, um, a massive tome. Really, uh, huh. and I managed to make through, make it through the first two volumes of it. Um, uh, perhaps we will talk a little bit about how the graphic novel and the film um, uh, share some things and diverge in some aspects. Yeah, you'll have to do some heavy lifting there if it's a, <laughs> if it's a big tome that I haven't read. It's going to make for a very um, Long monologue. I'll, uh, I'll take the strain. I'll take the strain. Shall I t- tell you what? Let's let's kick off. Let me tell you. Shall I tell you the story? Please. So Michael Fassbender uh, is a cold, super self-controlled, highly professional assassin. He is the killer of the title. He's a killer without a title. He never gets a name in the film. Um, apart from the many pseudonyms uh, that he uses to travel around the world incognito doing his work. So at the beginning of the film, uh, he is watching his quarry through the sights of his... I, I mean, that's the person he's going to kill, not 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 like um, you know, like an open, open-faced mine. That might um, have been more wa- interesting, though. <laughs> he's watching a lot of granite. Um, so he's watching his quarry through, through the sights of his sniper rifle from a disused WeWork office space in Paris. He's waiting and he's ruminating and he's reflecting on his life. Um, and he's yeah, talking to us, the viewer, in voiceover um, uh, for a long, long time as he waits for his moment. He has been hired for a hit on uh, an equally nameless wealthy man in the apartment opposite. Uh, but eventually the opportunity comes and the hit goes wrong and the killer has to escape. 
Uh, and back home, he finds that other hitmen Ooh. have tried to catch him at his Dominican Republic hideout. Uh, they've tortured his girlfriend. They've left her fighting for life. And so he swears revenge. And because he's the kind of man who has a certain set of skills and an arsenal of weaponry at safe houses around the world, he has the means to see it through. And that is the story that we follow for the film. Mm. And before we ring the spoiler bell, <laughs> I, I have I, I have one uh, single important point to make about this film. Yeah. Um, correct me if I am wrong. This film is a comedy. Isn't it? Ooh. Are you talking about the, the Fincher feature or the Wu Shu? Because I thought the Wu Shu was a comedy. It, t- it took me a couple of days to figure it out. I got to the end of the film and, and you know, as we've already, ex- or as I've already expressed, I enjoyed this film. Yeah. I, I, you know, I felt, you know, tense and excited and I enjoyed my time with it. And it was about two days later that I realized, wait a second, that was a comedy. Oh, we'll have we'll have to ring the spoiler bell before <laughs> before I explain, you know, why. But I think okay. I I reckon that's what this film is. It is the very darkest, straightest comedy I've seen in many, many years. Oh, you'll have to explain that carefully to me because that's not what I thought. <laughs> hmm. uh, well, shall we ring the spoiler bell? Yes. Because um, there is there, there are some plot twists to, to spoil in this film. But, okay. Um, uh, and, and I just like ringing the bell. Right, you ready? <laughs> yes. Ooh. Oh, that was well and truly wrong. Well, yeah, right, it, so. It kind of rings the bullets out of my head, though. So now I, I can think more clearly now. <laughs> Thinking comedy. Thinking comedy. Okay. So, I mean, there are some explicit overt gags. There is a gag where um, the killer has gone to uh, murder another hitman called The Brute. Um, who he hopes you know, to catch unawares, but actually he, you know, he is caught out and they're fighting in this guy's house. Yeah. Um, and at one point he's hiding in the kitchen and he opens the drawer trying to draw out some weapon that he can save himself with. And the only thing he draws out is a cheese grater. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and he kind of, you know, his whole face drops. You know, this is a, like a, a, you know, a clear gag. Yeah. Um, you know, there are other gags. The fact that when he goes to, to find this guy who's called the brute, he's watching the antiques road show on TV. But but kind of beyond that, I think everything in the film has this detached, ironical, comic tone. The killer, he like he um, he listens to music on you know, on something which is kind of like an iPod, I suppose. It's like an off-brand iPod. But the only music he listens to is the Smiths. Yeah. Um, you know, he's 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 um, doing his initial hit. He's doing his work from a WeWork office. Yeah. You know, with, with you know, he's turned the irony meter right up to ten. Um, you know, even the the very ending of the film, where after he has picked off all of the hitmen who have been sent uh, to wreak their revenge on him, he finally isolates the one wealthy guy who organised the hit right from the start. Yeah. And because this guy is very wealthy, he's a billionaire, all he gets is a slap on the wrist. Um, and the killer just tells him, well, don't do it again. Goodbye. Um, you know, which, which feels like a... a um, you know, a proper satire of the way that justice works mm. uh, in the Western world. I mean, the fact that every pseudonym that he uses, yeah. um, I only picked this up you know, rather secondhand, um, is a character from a sitcom. I did notice that one of the pseudonyms he uses is Sam Malone. 
yep. uh, who was Ted Danson's character in Cheers. But he calls himself Archie Bunker. Yep. He calls himself Howie Cunningham yep. uh, from Happy Days. He calls himself Felix Unger and Oscar Madison. Felix Unger, yep. Both the characters from The Odd Couple. And mm-hmm. uh, probably above all of these, basically the guy is a terrible assassin, isn't he? I think that is the joke. He has all these... These little mantras, doesn't he? He kind of he tells himself the rules. He reminds himself of how it works. Trust no one. Always stick to the plan. And then he trusts the wrong people and he and he never sticks to the plan and he keeps getting it wrong. You know, not one of his jobs goes smoothly. You know, it's it's I think this film is clearly a comedy. Unfortunately, it breaks the one rule of comedy in that it's not actually funny. <laughs> but, but outside of that, I, I think this is definitely a comedy. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Wow. <laughs> My mind is blown. I did not get that at all. Um, no, I, yeah, I didn't, uh, I never for a moment thought it was a comedy. The, the thing about this film for me is I think the beginning was super honest to me. Um, nobly honest. When, when, we, when we talk about the first 10 minutes, I remember, uh, and I'll, I'll drop a name again, Mike Primer, our good old friend, once he went to see Saving Private Ryan before mm. I did. And he said, you know, everyone told him, oh, the first 10 minutes, the first 10 minutes, they're unbelievable. And then he actually went and saw it and he said to me, the first 10 minutes, the first 10 minutes, they're unbelievable. Uh, and it's true. We talk <laughs> as writers about how the first 10 pages have to be great and a film um, has to be great in the first 10 minutes. Um, I think these first 10 minutes ain't those first 10 minutes. I thought this was <laughs> dull from the get-go. It was full of voiceover, just ponderous voiceover. And then that voiceover repeats again and again throughout the film. I never for I know I never smiled and never thought it was funny. I I didn't get that at all. So if we're talking about comedy, I think we have to cancel this pod because I think we saw different <laughs> films. Some people laugh at different things. Yeah, I guess but, smile humor, that's you, what they call it, smile humor. But, An inward smile. But you did say that you it was it was not funny. If it was a comedy, it was not funny. I mean, and for me, it was kind of tedious because the the gimmick on the seventies show names, I, you know, I I thought it was kind of interesting at first, but it didn't make any sense. And they do, I think, I counted ten names: Felix Unger, Archie Bunker, Oscar Madison, Harkonnen, Ruben Kincaid, Lou Grant, Sam Malone, um, George Jefferson, Bob Hartley. So there are at least nine names. I probably missed one. Um, it you know you can. You you break the rule of three there. I think if you do it three times, it might be funny. But when you do it three times three, there's a problem, I think. So I didn't think – that just felt gimmicky to me. And um, no, I can't say it was a comedy. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> laugh. I don't think I laughed. I'm, I'm trying to think of a moment where I did laugh and it didn't happen. It was it was a mirthless journey for me, to be honest with you. And I think the the thing that was funny to me, actually, you've sort of mentioned it already, is the Smith's music and the reason it made me laugh was because it's morose, of course, yeah. uh, morbid, wonderful. But I think of the the Smiths making some money and Morrissey making money off of this project. And if Morrissey is happy, you know something is seriously wrong with the world. So that's what was <laughs> that's what was funny to me. Um, but that was me thinking and laughing at myself. I didn't really laugh at uh, the film at all. I felt lost. Honestly, I felt lost a lot during the film because um, we never know. We never find out who that first target was, right? No. Um, we don't know why he was bad, and I, I never like find myself yearning for exposition when I'm watching a film. But this film, I was just saying, please tell me something that I need to know because I don't understand why they even made this film. Um, and I think for me, something very poignant is um, the last the last couple scenes. I guess when he does confront the 
um, is it, uh, well, I knew his name at one point, I probably wrote it down, Holloway or um, the man who he's going after the whole time, the top dog who's ordered his hit, and he's just this kind of low-key. Yeah, Claiborne. Claiborne, Claiborne. really rich guy. Um, And for me, I was really disappointed because, you know, normally you, you go up the... The hierarchy and you knock off everyone who's done you wrong and you kill the the most powerful guy last. And that seems where we're headed. And then he lets him off the hook. You're right. He breaks into the house and he threatens him face to face. But for me, the poignant thing, I had to think back on this. It took me a few days to come back to this. The reason he didn't kill him there, I think, was because he wants him to live this life where he's thinking he's always going to be killed. So it's it's more of a it's more of a revenge if he was it Claiborne Claiborne. 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 If Claiborne's walking through life or sitting in his own unit, in his own apartment, his condo, never feeling safe and never knowing when he's going to be poisoned to death or shot or bludgeoned or whatever, gotten in, in, you know, forced into a car accident, I think that's a greater revenge. So I think that's the killer. There is this ironic piece in the sense that the killer who's using guns and, and bullets and strangling people or clubbing them over the head... That's kind of brutish, and um, you're right. He's not a very. He's not actually that good at it. But this one, this is his masterpiece. Is to watch this guy live this life compromised by the fact that he might be killed at any moment. So that's the the best revenge, I guess. And that came to me later. It took me a while to figure that out. Like I kept asking myself, why doesn't he just kill that guy at that moment? That's what we're all waiting for. It doesn't happen. And it it as a result, you get this anticipation of, oh God, when is it going to happen? So there's more, more just concern and more worry that you're going to be offed at any moment. So um, that was the one thing that I thought was somewhat poignant. Other, but again, I had to do a little bit of work and think back on that to get there. I didn't feel that moment in the, in the film at the end. So it's what you, what, you, what you mean is it's a slow burn film. That's what you're saying. Well, it's, it's a slow burn film. In the same way, it took me two days to figure out it was a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> slow smolder or <laughs> slow not burn. I don't know. I mean, it, uh, there there's some things about it that I just think break rules and I just really didn't like. So I, I, I honestly, I loathed this film because there's so much talent. <laughs> There's so much talent on the line. You've got Fincher. You've got a great actor in Fassbender. Tilda Swinton. I was waiting for Tilda Swinton to come for an hour or more thinking, okay, well, then we're going to have two actors who are actually doing some acting. But as a result, this guy's a loner, so he's not interacting with many people, and he's only interacting with them on this sort of existential level of I'm going to kill you or you're going to give me information, and then I'm going to kill you kind of. Um, So Fassbender doesn't have a lot of acting to do, and yet – he has lots of telling to do. It breaks this rule of show, the rule of show don't tell again ah. and again, and it's the same monologue again and again. I generally don't like voiceovers unless they're completely off the wall or maybe used much um, less liberally. This is just voiceover after voiceover after voiceover, and you learn a little bit about the guy, but you don't really know that much. He's got his rules. He says. Uh, Popeye, I am what I am. And then he says, avoid being memorable. And he says, you know, don't let emotion rule you or whatever. And he's got all these rules. And you're right, he breaks them because he's kind of not a great killer, perhaps. Um, But we don't need to hear his thoughts again and again. That's just like a rule in filmmaking that you don't just sort of, you know, give the interior um, psychology of the character. You have to show it, right? Um, The rule of three I just told it, talked about. I think that rule is broken again and again. Um, For Fincher, I felt like this is a film that really lacked images that were really memorable. I didn't, I didn't see, there's no like, there's no like proper um, set piece shot. There's nothing that's really awe inspiring. It's, 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 he's telling a story 
lots of the time there's a lot of darkness. I mean, and, and there's a metaphorical darkness, but there's also just dark imagery, that fight in Florida. I went, I stopped it. I went to my computer, tried to brighten the screen a little bit to see what was going on. <laughs> it worked a little bit. It didn't see much more and it didn't seem like anything important was happening. So it was funny how how few of the images actually gave a lot of information, told a lot of story, or were even just like beautifully composed images, which you more often um, get in a Fincher film. I, th- I thought the opening of a guy in a dark room spying on this beautiful, um, I don't know, penthouse in in Paris, there was some good imagery there, but it comes very early and it's 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 really just because he's doing nothing but talking to himself for 10 minutes. And so I think that image was lost on me, though it was kind of interesting. That's the image that looked like a graphic novel, too. It really looked like it was taken right out of a graphic novel. Interestingly, that scene is taken straight out of the graphic novel. That you know, this is the way that the book starts. Um, there you go. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're past, we'll kind of talk maybe about yeah the similarities and differences from the book in a bit. I mean, I think that early scene where he's you know, watching the apartment at night, and you can just see the way that the headlights are reflected from yeah. the window onto his ceiling. I, mean, I, th- I think it is beautifully shot. Yeah. I think there's a lot of understated beauty in the photography. Um, and having spoken to Mike Primer, Ooh, yeah. um, it does sound beautiful, actually. I was really listening for the sound in this film, yeah. and it did not disappoint. I think it's, you know, it's a um, fantastic sound design in the film. I I think this film, in a way, it's, it's a it looks a little bit like a David Fincher greatest hits okay. compilation to me. Yeah, because we have, you know, we have this nameless protagonist, you know, and and his kind of sort of fetishization of of physical possessions mm-hmm. uh, that we see in Fight Club, um, you know, because he's you know built up this big kind of um, this collection of guns and, and each sealed in little plastic bags. I mean, it, it all kind of feels very Fight Club. Um, he's very interested in building sites and power tools, which is the whole setting for Panic Room. Yeah. yeah that film is all about building sites and power tools. This kind of this way that murder is sort of fetishized and the way that it's filmed really reminds me of Zodiac. Yeah. And then even uh, the, the killer that um, Fassbender is playing. I mean, I'm guessing he is neurodivergent. I think he probably must be. He certainly seems... Um, you know, well, sort of quite blank and un- non-expressive, um, which rather reminds me of the protagonist from The Social Network because that's kind of how Zuckerberg comes across in that film as well. Yeah. So I, th- I think it feels like it's it feels like a very Finchery Fincher film. Yeah. Um, and and it's it is all kind of very precise and measured and controlled, which I think that's kind of what his films are all about. It's control, isn't it? Yeah. And there's I think. You know, apparently everything is you know shot with a tripod, even those those um, shots which are kind of feel like they're done with a, a kind of a shaky handheld camera mm-hmm. are still shot on a tripod and then they turn it into a shaky hand um, handheld look mm-hmm. uh, on the computer afterwards. Oh. I think it's all very, very controlled. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's kind of the way that he works. And this this film absolutely fits into that kind of mold. Yeah. I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that because that is true but it sort of also supports my point that there's there's nothing new in this film. It feels like he's just leaning on his old his old tricks um and I, I you know I don't think the the film doesn't really advance filmmaking in a way there was really nothing novel in it. I think you're right. It's just he's sort of pulling out these things that he's done before and regurgitated them and I I also think it doesn't do anything for storytelling. I didn't feel like there was anything in in the storytelling that was original either. And I think maybe the, the original material, I'm going to guess, 
was not that strong. I mean, maybe the graphic novels sold well and people love it, but I, I don't think the story is that interesting, honestly, and I don't think it was retold um, from the screenplay um, very interesting either. And, and the other thing is, it's it's why why do we have to have chapter? Why are there chapters? Why is there chapter one, chapter two, chapter three? Is it a book? <laughs> is it a movie? Um, and at other times, it felt like a travel film, right? You're in Paris. You're in mm, the Dominican yep, Republic. Yep. You are in Florida. No, New Orleans, Florida, New York, I thought at one point, but Chicago, certainly. Um, it just felt like it was an excuse to move around the world and, and <laughs> have some fun in different cities because it doesn't look like it's just green screen and studio. It looks like they were actually in these places or some unit was in these places. And I agree with you. The sound, what I noticed in particular was the the location sound in Chicago, for some reason, sounded really, really good. Ah. Do you know why? Why is that? I think that's where our friend of the pod, Michael Primer, was on this crew, was in ah. Chicago. That's where, his, that's where his credit came up to, 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 my, <laughs> to my eye, anyway. It was the only Chicago location sound, so I say that kind of in jest. But um, it, it felt like between the, the chapters had to move place to place. It seemed like every chapter took uh, place in a different... Um, location. Um, it just felt a little forced. I don't know why we need to know that there are chapters. And every time we've seen chapters in films, I think of Asteroid City or, um, and I'll, I'll mention something that I saw recently that also had a sort of chapter structure. It just, it, it seems like it's a book. It seems like you're not straying away enough from the source material to tell a really coherent story. It felt really uh, jumpy to me. Like he goes to one place, doesn't interact with anyone, but kills a few people. Goes to another place, doesn't really interact with anyone, but kills a few people. And then on and on. Um, it just, it, there, I didn't find a flow. I didn't know anything about him. I was missing that one line that explains him like, oh boy, once you're in Afghanistan, you're just destroyed forever. Or once a <laughs> Marine with PTSD, always a Marine with PTSD or something. Just something to tell me why he got into this work. Um, because all the stuff that he says in his monologues it's repetitive. We get it, um, but it really doesn't really doesn't tell you much about him as a character, as a human being. Like, what makes a human being do that sort of stuff? What take on that that job? And why would a killer who kills quite indiscriminately be so moved by you know the the one girlfriend in the Dominican Republic, who again we don't know anything about. We don't know how connected they are. Are they married? Uh, there's the brother at first. She's a and then the sister's uh, or the girlfriend's alive, but then at the end you see her again. Um, but you don't get much information and all that. So um, his motive, all the motivations seem kind of unclear. We don't know the motivations of Claiborne either because we don't know who that dude was who was killed in Paris either. So it, it just felt like everything was just hanging there. It was, as, as you said, maybe a, a mishmash, a bric-a-brac of, of all these Fincher things before um, and just put out for, for a few weeks in the theaters and then Netflix. Let, I, I will, let me tell you about the book at least. Um... So as we discuss, it does start with a hit in Paris that goes wrong. Um, and the opening of the book is yeah. quite a lot like the opening of the film. Um, there certainly is a in lot of interminable internal monologue in the book. Um, but you know, after that first opening scene, the actual story uh, diverges very widely from the film. So the hit in Paris goes wrong, but he still does manage to get the target. Uh, it's just that he ends up with a lot of collateral kills as Ooh, well. Okay. Um, and 
so the the film then it, it retains a few elements from a book. It has it has the killer. It does have the girlfriend. It does have a lawyer acts as his manager, but it kind of mixes them all up um, a lot, and and it's turned the film into quite a different story to the one where yeah um, in the book um, he ends up killing his his kind of lawyer come manager come booker you know fairly early on and then he kind of he ends up then working for a drug cartel and he kind of branches out and he does a whole bunch of hits on other people and then he has to train another hitman and yeah. a whole bunch of very very different things happen ah. um the art in the book is good but it's kind of it it's sort of a bit repetitive i think i don't find it very easy to read graphic novels. I find it a bit hard on the eyes after a while. Yeah. The story in the book is kind of, a, it's a bit of a monotone. It's kind of hundreds of pages, but it's the same style, the same tone. It's got a dark, edgy, brooding violence. It's a tiring read. Um, and I would say there is actually more tonal variation in the film than there is in the book. Was the book a comedy? That no, would... the book, there, there's yeah, nothing humorous, nothing ironical yeah. in the book at all. You see, I think this is why um, another reason why the, the, the film counts as a comedy is because um, I think you know, I, I just like you really, really dislike voiceover. And I think it's a terrible storytelling mistake, except in the cases where the voiceover is telling you something that's completely different to the action that's happening on screen. And I think in this case, this film passes that test because he's delivering this kind of this monologue to us, the audience, or he's telling himself, you know, stay in control, stick to the plan, mm -hmm. remember the target, yeah. don't trust anyone, while we are watching him on screen break all of these rules and get it completely wrong and yeah. sort of flail around and be a you know a bit of an idiot. Um, and I think that kind of voiceover it was acceptable because the mismatch between what he's saying and what's happening turns it then into a comedy. I think, I think that works. I was prepared to accept it as a voiceover. Yeah. I, I was watching the voiceover as I probably do with any film with a voiceover and thinking, Oh, this would be better without it, you know, and trying to imagine what the film would be like sure. um, if they had refified it, if it was just a 20 minute yeah. silent scene of, of, of uh, Fassbender watching someone through a sniper scope. Um, and that film would be fine, but I don't think it would enjoy that kind of ironical layer of comedy without the voiceover. Yeah. I, th I think this is one of those rare cases where I think the voiceover brings a dimension that wasn't there before. Um, you know, what I'm going to ask you now is what do you think? What is the film? And I, th I think you're going to have a very negative answer to this. <laughs> what is this? What is this film actually about? I wrote, this is what I wrote. I wrote, it's a bloated nothing burger. <laughs> That's what it's about. I don't think it's about really much at all. Um, I'd love, can I turn the question right around? What you, you tell me what it's about because I didn't have a sense that they were really trying to mean anything. It just felt like it was an action film with lots of shoot ups. I don't, yeah, I don't know what it was about. I, th I, th I, th I think it is cleverer than that. I mean, um, but you know, I'm prepared to be told that I'm seeing something that is not is there that is not there. I, I think I think it's about dehumanization, which is like a theme that we've seen in quite a lot of films recently. I think. Yeah. I think it's it's about kind of a dehumanization that's inherent in consumerism. I think it's kind of suggesting that consumerism is a little bit like murder. Consumerism kind of you know implicates or necessarily requires murder. I think I think it sort of reminded me of it. I think Fassbender comes across a little bit like. 
like a YouTube hustle culture influencer. He's got his kind of smartwatch that counts off the time and he's got his kind of fitness regime and he's kind of cramming everything into the day. And you know he eats only the protein from his McDonald's meal. And, he, and he's constantly spouting these little self-help mantras about mm. always remember the plan, you know, trust no one. Yeah. He's got these catchphrases and these little sort of pithy repeated mottos. And I think it's kind of about that. It's about this kind of emptiness at the heart of this kind of modern culture. Yeah. You know, he's, he's kind of very much a consumer. You know, he consumes flights and hire cars and you know he's got storage lockers filled to the brim with stuff all around the world and yet you know he is at his center utterly empty it's interesting that the scene where he goes to the hospital um to find out uh, to, you know to, to to discover the the the, the girlfriend yeah. you know virtually in a coma um, I, I remember reading online that someone was saying, why didn't they use that Smith song, Girlfriend in a Coma, for that scene? Oh. Kind of there was <laughs> such a thing as two on the nose, even for this film. <laughs> but but um, yeah, I, I, I got to the end of that scene and I was questioning, is that the girlfriend or is that his housekeeper? Um, yeah. It wasn't even clear what the relationship was there. And but, I think yeah. he, he, is, he is so hollow. He is... He has dehumanized himself and his surroundings so much that he's not even able to have a you know, like a clear, open human emotional relationship, even with someone that he is closest to. Yeah, I think I think it's about dehumanization and the way that the story, a lot of it happens in these kind of liminal architectural spaces. It's all set in like service elevators and parking garages, airport lounges and underpasses. Um it kind of happens in this kind of unseen other world, the world in between, the world where things yeah. don't happen, the world that you pass through to get to the parts of the world where things do happen. Yeah. That's where all of this story occurs. I think it's it's to do with lack of connection um, and and dehumanization and separateness and and you know the death of the human spirit. That's what I got out of it. Yeah, that's good. I think that's good. <laughs> but maybe it's not there. Well, I don't know. Well, my first question would be, is that residual from the graphic novel? And do you have that from the graphic novel? Um, uh, actually, I, 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 only, I read the novel after seeing the film. Okay. And I, and I think, I think the, the graphic novel is a little bit more grandiose and it enjoys its architecture. And, it's, yeah. and I, I think the protagonist in the, in the graphic novel is a bit more human. Yeah. Whereas, whereas you know, he's much more of an empty, empty husk in this film. Yeah. The dehumanization angle is good especially the fact that we never know his name of course he's using the these aliases and he's leaving this entirely secret life i think that's pretty that's pretty good and i the consumerism angle i think is a bit more subtle i, I wouldn't have gotten that at all but i think on, upon hearing the demonization i think that's good and it's part of the times but it's ironic because i think that's more like that's the new humanization i think that's the world that we do live in now is the your social uh, influencer angle or these spaces, these malls and these airports and these parking garages that they are taking over our lives. So I think there's uh, maybe it's new humanization just as much as it's dehumanization. Um, so that, that's good. That's dark. But it, <laughs> this, but the story is not that good. And this, that's not that clear to the average viewer. It, if, that's the, you know, if that's what they were going for, it kind of went over my head. Um, and I'm glad it did not go over your head. But I wonder if, you know, if that's what the average... Um, viewers taking away from it. I, I don't know who the average viewer is. Um, well, so I'm, sure, I, I'm sure the average viewer is a lot cleverer than I am. Though. Well, I think 
I think there are a lot of people who just want to see like a really awful character. I mean, one of the one of the doing bad things, right? Killing people. Um, I, one of the last moments is that he implies that this his qualities are inside all of us, that we could all be that kind of person, right? He's asking you, you know, who, uh, who are you? Yeah. I am what I am and who are you? Uh, you might be one like just like me. And, uh, you know, that's rough because, yeah, I feel dehumanized once in a while, but I'm not going to pick up a gun and kill people for money. So, I mean, that's a, that's a <laughs> You pre- say. <laughs> <laughs> Give me another couple of years. Um, <laughs> yes. And I also... For both of these films, I saw them at the worst possible time because here, in about thirty miles from me, there was the most recent sort of high-profile mass mass killing oh. uh, in this country. So for me, it, it was it ended up being a really bad time to, to see these films. So I think I'm especially negative there. But for me, yeah. I think just a lot of the rules are just broken too. I think everything is really easy for the protagonist in this film, and that's another sort of cardinal sin in storytelling. It's not that hard for him to do what he does, which is frightening. It's frightening. Um, uh, yeah. Honestly. And, you know, you'd, you'd make his, yeah, sure, he misses the first uh, target and that leads to problems. And, you know, his girlfriend, who he doesn't seem that concerned about, he seems more concerned. He leaves her in the hospital and goes off on his worldwide, you know, revenge tour. Um, uh, I think things are pretty easy for him. And maybe that's because he's so professional. He's got the storage locker. He's got the weapons here. He's got the weapons there. He can just sort of flow th- freely accessing one bank account or another. But from a storytelling perspective, you got to make his job a little bit harder, I think. Um, and that's not this film. It doesn't happen in this film. And, and w- I've never written this down as a note, but I think for me, again, I don't have as positive a feeling for the film as you do. But um, I was wondering if this is like a producer problem. I didn't recognize any of the producers on this film. And I'm wondering, ah. is there a creative producer who's missing, uh, like guiding this film to be about, to, to be more clearly about dehumanization or to be more clearly about something as, a, as opposed to, you know, two hours to fill up a slot on, on Netflix or whatnot. So um, that is a good question. Yeah. I think because sometimes a producer, a really good producer can help guide a story and you've, you know, you've got the, the the difficulty of taking it from a graphic novel, which probably was written in France, appeared in French and all that, and then, you know, taking it to an American writer and then taking it to a director like Fincher to try and make it, you know, a Fincher feature. Um, I think you probably need some pretty good producers along the line. So I just wonder, it's not a note that I write very often, but I'm wondering, um, is there a creative producer sort of missing here? That is a very salient note. Um, yeah, interesting question. Very interesting. Um, I think I there is... Um, a, a nagging need to place a very important call. Yeah. But before we do that, I have one question for you. Um, you may be able to answer this easily. I couldn't really. Yeah. When do you think this movie is set? Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I just didn't... Because I felt like it's, it seems to be sort of happening now. There are yeah. smartphones and Amazon delivery lockers and things. But, yeah. but also, there's the, the, like the... The guy who is the lawyer who books all of his cases, he keeps his files on like one of those big white iBook G4s yeah. that they only sold in 19, in like yeah. 2007 or something. Yeah. And and even right at the very beginning of the film, it's like it looks like they're building a new WeWork office. Yeah. The... I haven't, I, I don't think anybody is building <laughs> new WeWork offices now. They're trying to flog them off, aren't they? They just went bankrupt, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I don't quite understand. Is it is it happening now? Is it happening in 2007? It's almost like the story sort of happens outside of time. Yeah. Well, I think there's that that safety 
element where things offline are safer now. So it makes sense that these guys are in some very sort of uh, clandestine dealings and in, in international murder schemes and whatnot. So they'd want to keep things offline and make sure that nothing's on a computer. It's basically just in, uh, yeah, it, aren't the cards, the cards are from Rolodex too. You know, he's pulling mm. his Rolodex cards and all the files are on paper. I think that is just for security, but obviously with cell phones and laptop computers, you're thinking, you know, at least 2008 or 2010 and later. Um, but at the same time, maybe it's supposed to be sort of out of time. I mean, his his whole life seems kind of out of time. He's not connected to anything, right? Yeah, it's you're right. Yeah, no he is kind of no absolutely drifting free, isn't he? Yeah, so I, I felt like that was one of the um, the things that – and again, it's kind of the thing that I didn't like. I, I, I think you needed more interaction because you're just telling – you're getting his point of view. He's telling you exactly what he's thinking and all about himself, whereas – as I said earlier, I was waiting for Tilda Swinton to get in there and do something. And honestly, she was probably on set a day, maybe a day and a half. She's just <laughs> sitting at a table and then she gets offed herself by the river after they've talked. Um, it, I feel like this film intentionally avoids interaction. And maybe that's a dehumanization theme as well. Um, and when you finally get some, you're thinking, OK, you've got an A-list actor. Tilda Swinton's there. It's going to be an amazing scene. Eh, it's not terribly interesting. They're sitting at a table drinking whiskey and not eating dessert, I guess. And uh, I just felt like, again, he missed an opportunity to do something different in that moment. And it's just not there. So it, it just felt like one thing after another, but nothing that really tied it together in an interesting way for me. So I was never engaged. I was watching it for you, two Real Cinema Club listeners. I was watching it for you. <laughs> Took one for the team. Maybe two for the team. <laughs> Speaking of teams, yes. then okay, well let's let's phone our favourite team. Yes, please. Cliché squad, gonna, come. Shortly before smashing our phone, we're going to make one single phone call on it, which is to the Cliché Squad. Cliché Squad. Well, well, tell me, did you spot any clichés in this film? I had, I, well, I think you have a long list, so maybe I should get through my list quickly, and then you can. Uh, I had a couple. The first one is. Um, this is very subtle, and that scene was so dark, I wasn't sure what I saw. But um, fire irons as weapons. Oh, yeah. The reason this struck out to me was because it, this is a Florida scene, and you know, parts of northern Florida, you might have a wood, wood fire in your house or something like that, but most of Florida wouldn't have <laughs> fireplaces or need for fire irons. Um, in fact, it's a state that wouldn't exist without air conditioning. But um, here it was a potential <laughs> weapon just swinging. You heard a little bit of sound there too. Like he, he was going to take a fire iron to, to, to defeat the brute down there in that, in that fight. And then the other one, um, uh, boy, pit bulls. Oh. You know I have a connection because we've, we've, we've talked about Dino on the program before. Yeah. And I also lived with another pit bull for four years named Katie. And they are amazing dogs. They're beautiful um, and they're stereotyped, not because they are bad dogs, but because they are, um, are very often owned by some of the most repugnant of human beings who train them to kill <laughs> each other for blood money sport. So I, I, I take offense to that cliche because I think it's used to, to characterize the, 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 the brute, right? The character in that situation. Uh, like if you own a pit bull, you're a bad guy or you're just going to use them to fight. And honestly, they're awesome dogs. I love them. They're very sweet. They're very affectionate. And it's cruel to see what happens to them. So I'm just going to put that out there as a cliche because it pissed me off. Yeah, shame on you. You're right. Yeah. It's the worst kind of cinematic shorthand. Yeah. I d um, I d 
I, I would say I said one, one of the notes that I wrote while watching the film was do not lend this man your phone. Uh, <laughs> because having seen him make a phone call and then you know and then smash it and rip out the sim card you know, yeah, every, yeah every time you know I've, I've seen that lots of times but i mean i think there is a great litany of cliches in this film but i think i mean, so, so much so the another note i wrote which is this film basically is the cliche squad <laughs> but 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 i think that is the point that is the joke i think okay. i think they are deliberately waving these cliches in your in your face as the viewer yeah. Okay. Because it's a kind of an ironic comment on yeah. you know, exactly these kind of these um, sort of dehumanized lone killer cliche films. Um, one thing I did sort of draw a question mark on was the, the cliche, which is the prize that he wins at the end of the film, which is that he gets to recline by a pool yeah. next to a young woman in a swimsuit. Um, because it's exactly the same happy ending that we saw in Trading Places just a few yeah. weeks ago. It is that super cliche. Oh, this is what a happy ending looks like. But but yeah. you know, I think all of it. I think I think it's all deliberate. I think you know, like everything okay. that Fincher does, it's very deliberate. It's utterly controlled. It's yeah. not that this is the best they could think of, so they just bunged it in because they had to you know finish shooting this afternoon. I think the cliches are there for a reason. I think the cliches are kind of the, the reason for the whole film. Um, yeah. So, so I think the, the cliche squad are just going to have to arrest themselves because, because you know they've generated an entire film here. Let's let's hope that they're more successful at killing cliches <laughs> than the killer is at killing people. Um, I would say the one thing. One, my my final word would be, I guess, uh, one of the it sort of becomes a cliche because he says it so many times to himself is avoid being memorable. Mm. And I said, I would say for me, this film will have no problem <laughs> uh, being not memorable. This film is not memorable for me. For some people, they might think it's their favorite film, and that's great. Sorry, that's another one of the jokes that you know, it makes me chuckle in retrospect. You know, my, he says, yeah. my disguise is based on an outfit I saw a German tourist wearing. It's that's like... right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, okay, let's, let's, have, let's have a break. Let's don yeah. our hats and our, uh, our chinos, uh, have yeah. a walk around the block and not get spotted. We'll have a break, um, and then we will come back and we will talk about the film that this is this David Fincher picture is not a remake of. We will talk about 1989's The Killer. This episode of the Two Real Cinema Club is sponsored by OpenAI the innovative San Francisco-based artificial intelligence company that brought you ChatGPT and the DALI image generator. Led by its charismatic CEO, Sam Altman, OpenAI has built the world... Oh, oh wait. No, sorry. I've, I've just had an email. Oh, right. Sorry. Okay. Sam Altman is not is not the CEO of OpenAI. Sorry. He's been <laughs> sacked. Well, well, okay. Let me, I'll just incorporate the changes still. But the company is still sponsoring us. Okay. So they're capitalizing on the incredible profits generated by ChatGPT. And they're... they're oh, wait. No, I'll just add another email. Sorry. Wait a second. Wait a second. Okay. No. OpenAI is, is a not-for-profit company that's not making any <laughs> profits generated by ChatGPT, despite making lots of profits from ChatGPT. OpenAI is now led by... Uh, somebody else, I suppose, not Sam Altman anyway, and they've been innovating since... Oh, no, wait, sorry, I've just had a message. Wait a second. Oh, right, no, the board wants Sam Altman to come back. Good. So, so right, so OpenAI and Sam Altman are the sponsors of the two real... No, wait, sorry, no, I've had a message. No, sorry. No, the board have resigned. They've all resigned. Okay. 
Okay, so so this episode is sponsored by OpenAI, uh, which is led by no one, no one at all. Um, but there, no, wait, no, it's, sorry, sorry, I've had another message. It's Microsoft, Microsoft. Microsoft oh. are the AI pioneers with their AI division led by the charismatic CEO, Sam Altman, and they are sponsoring the two real, no, no, sorry, I've just had another Uh-oh. message. No, they're not. No, Microsoft are not sponsoring the two real cinema club. It's all cancelled. I don't know what's going on here. I'm sorry. But, oh, but then God. neither do any of the sponsors, it seems like. Nobody knows where Sam Altman is working today. Uh, uh, but I have just another message from OpenAI. Uh, would we like to be on the board of the company? Apparently there are a lot of vacancies. Okay, so there's that. Good. I'm confused. I thought, I thought we had a really reliable sponsor for <laughs> Yeah, for about uh, 15 seconds. <laughs> no. I'll take the board position to put those papery <laughs> What could possibly go wrong? Welcome back, everyone, to the Two Real Cinema Club and to the killer. Uh oh. <laughs> Haven't we already talked about the killer? Talk about this. Tell me, you tell me, why are we talking about the killer again? Do you have any other questions for me, Counselor? When I originally heard that David Fincher was making a film called The Killer, I just assumed that it was going to be a remake of this John Woo film from 1989. This is the first film that I think of when you say The Killer. I think there have been a bunch of other movies also called The Killer. But these are the only two that I, you know, that that immediately come um, to mind. It's just like the, um, it's like, you know, the obvious comparison. Um, I will say, you know, even though uh, The Fincher feature is not a remake of The Woo Show, um, yeah. I think if you call a film The Killer, you can't help but reference this John Woo film. Yeah. It must be self-conscious. It's not that the people who were making The Killer kind of had never heard of John Woo's picture from 1989. It was a big Hong Kong Chinese cinema breakout movie. Everyone will have seen it. Um, so just calling your film The Killer is in part acknowledging the reach of this 1989 yeah. film. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I remember seeing this decades ago. I got to drop this name again. I think three times now. Michael Primer, who has ghosted me, by the way. Did I tell you that? (laughs) Jeez, we invited him to come on and talk about some films. And I haven't heard from him in a while. But he did show me this film, I think probably 1991, 92 or something like that. It came out in 1989, as you said. Um, And... I thought this was a comedy. So there's a connection to the other killer because when I saw this the first time and we didn't watch the whole film, they were just showing me some scenes. Um, I thought this was a comedy. So uh, another connection there. Um, it's IMDb allegedly says it's uh, dedicated to Martin Scorsese. Oh, I didn't see that yeah. in the credits. You got to go deep in the IMDb, man. You do. Yeah, oh yeah. my goodness. So I don't know if that, I didn't see that in the... Credits are in the titles in any way, but um, it does say that it's uh, dedicated to him on IMDb for what it's worth, um, which kind of makes sense. We might talk about that later. Um, Directed by John Woo, as you said. He actually wrote the screenplay or whatever there was for a screenplay here. Um, (laughs) Features Chow Yun-Fat, Danny Lee, and Sally Yeh are the leads. It's not really a love triangle, but a triangle of people together shall i tell you a little bit about the story oh yes tell me the story this is one of those films that uh, has sort of a bookended location it's a church full of candles and we're going to come back to this by the end you come back to it a couple of times but it, the film starts in the 
church where Ah Young, I think that's his name. We call him Jeff, though. Is that the feeling that you got too? Ah Jong? It is, yes. Yeah. That's what the subtitle said on my copy, Jeff. So he's got, he's called Jeff. That's the uh, Chow Yun fat character. Uh, his friend has brought him a suitcase or a briefcase with a photo, cash, and a gun, setting him up for a hit. Um, and Ah Jong, or Jeff, I'll start calling him Jeff from now on. Um, He's sort of hanging out in this um, nightclub. He seems to be falling in love with this singer named Jenny. Um, But it's where he's going to um, execute the hit, I guess is the way to say it. Um, There's a high body count um, in in the nightclub, and he nearly kills Jenny as um, collateral damage. Um, Jeff actually ends up going back to the church for a very rudimentary surgery, um, complete with that, it might be cliched, the bullet dropping into the metal uh, yeah. bowl. And this might be a good time to ask, um, I didn't see an anesthetist there. Did you see any anesthesiology? <laughs> and also, is the church lit by candles a good place for surgery? <laughs> I, I didn't see an anesthetist. I didn't even see a bottle of Advil or anything. I mean, no. there was really, there was nothing. There is, there is one point in the film where... Um, Chow Young Fat gets his friend to cauterize a wound, and he literally bites yes. on a stick, doesn't he? That's 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 gangster. I medicine. think it's, it's what I wrote that down to. Is, is it a cigarette? Uses a cigarette and a gun or something like that to or a bullet? I forget. <laughs> we'll we'll get to it later. Maybe. <laughs> I think there, you quickly figure out there's no no problems in this film that cannot be solved with a, with a gun. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, um, there's a sort of soap opera moment where the bandages come off and in the hospital and Jenny is blind. So the singer who, with whom uh, Jeff is in love is uh, blinded um, in part because of him. So he has this guilt problem uh, uh, haunting him. Um, she can still perform or sing and Jeff goes to see her. He follows her. Um, as a guardian angel, she's walking on the streets and he um, follows her. He's trying to keep an eye on her. I guess he's, he's obviously falling in love with her before. Um, and then he continues to have these feelings of, uh, of amorousness grow, grow, grow. Um, but coincidentally, when he's following her, she's robbed um, by some thugs on the street, some goons on the street. And uh, there are these great sounds like a cart, like from a cartoon of garbage cans being thrown around. It's quite... Uh, <laughs> That's why, again, I think it was kind of, I thought this was a, I, even this time I think it might be a comedy, but um, he saves her. They begin to sort of fall in love. Um, there's this one moment where she says, oh, you know, I'll put some music on. It happens to be the song that she was singing before <laughs> you shot me kind of thing, uh, before he, uh, Jeff, shot her. Um, so he has feelings for her clearly. Um like a lot of the film, it feels like a, it feels like a music video. I don't know if John Woo did music videos before he... Um, started making films. I, d- I don't think he did. Uh, David Fincher definitely did. Definitely, yeah, but, exactly. Um, yeah, but I don't, I'm, I'm not sure that John Woo has. It was just one of those things that, again, occurred to me while watching it because it felt very music video at times. And having watched the Fincher film, I thought maybe knowing his history that maybe they both come from that background as a lot of film directors uh, in the last 20 or 30 years um, do. Um, once they are kind of set up as a romantic couple, um, uh, Jeff and Jenny, um, this parallel, parallel story develops focused on Inspector Lee Ying, played by Danny Lee. Um, he ends up killing an innocent bystander, a woman in um, uh, another police uh, event or police uh, uh, moment, and uh, he ends up quitting the force in this uh, self-righteous moment where he's throwing down his badge and all that. Um, 
There was harmonica music. It reminded me a little bit of Once uh, Once Upon a Time in the Absol- West. Um, yeah, absolutely. Charles Bronson, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was looking for Charles Bronson, and I couldn't see him because <laughs> there weren't those big close-ups that uh, Sergio yeah. Leone likes as much. Um, but uh, I think that was sort of Jeff's music, uh, indicating it was it was going to be his last hit, and he was going to do it for Jenny. Um Jeff has been um, sort of hired by his friend to kill this corporate type. I think his name was Mr. Wang. Is that what? Yeah, the, I think so. Yeah. So I couldn't tell what his business was. He seemed like part uh, criminal, part corporate executive. Um, and he's hired Lee, who's been who's left the the police force uh, as a private security guard, um, which always struck me as odd because he already has a full century of goons to protect him. The, the, the number of bodies that fire guns and protect people very poorly um, in this film, it's really astounding. Um, but uh, So Jeff gets away with the hit, but um, does not kill Wang. There are many times when people fail to kill Wang in this film. Um, but there's a boat chase. Jeff gets away. Uh, it's a great sort of part green screen, part live action uh, boat chase with lots of guns um, because so many people want to kill Jeff at this point. He's really um, making a lot of people quite angry. Um, it looked like Jeff kills a girl and is chased by the by Lee. So he's basically because of the the Wang hit. Um, Lee is after Jeff. Um, I don't remember this part well, but you should remember it because it happens in an operating room. Is there this? There's a shootout, or nearly a shootout in an operating operating there room. Is, I think but, it's the little girl is like caught in the crossfire yeah. because yeah, because kind of um, Charion gets away in a boat and then he kind of he ditches the boat on yeah. a beach and he's got a getaway car, but yeah. it's like an ambush. And there are, you know, approximately two thousand guys with guns all waiting <laughs> for him. So, so you know, everybody gets shot. Uh, and this little girl is caught in the crossfire. So he scoops her up and puts her in the in the passenger seat of the, yeah. the getaway car and, and, and drives her to a hospital. Hats off and they're to just the doctors. Like in the in the like the emergency department, yeah. basically, aren't they? they I and, think. And the doctors there are so calm, and they save the girl. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's just a it's a great medical moment that contrasts quite well to the some of the the dodgy medicine that happens in the church <laughs> earlier and later. I think a lot a lot of dodgy medicine happens at the church. But um, anyway, Lee goes to visit. Jenny, where Jenny and Jeff are sort of living together. So Jeff now can't go there because he knows that uh, Lee is on to him. There's a great face-off scene, however, when Jeff does go back to the apartment um, and Lee can't reveal who the each... He doesn't really reveal that he's an inspector or a cop and Jeff doesn't reveal that he's a killer um, and <laughs> blind Jenny is in between them It's and they start calling each <laughs> other by and this is a connection to uh, the Fincher feature, Donald, C- Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. So they're <laughs> pretending that they're old friends but they've got guns on each other while Jenny's walking around in between them blindly. It's a great... It's a great scene. <laughs> I loved it. It's so absurd. Um, and it reminded me a lot of Face Off with Travolta and Nick Cage, yeah. where John Woo just does a great job directing those guys, and they have so much fun in that film. So I don't want to talk about that film too much, but you should go see it to Real Cinema Club members. Um, that's kind of the midpoint. Jeff ends up getting away um, during this silent duel just before uh, Jenny can realize that, she's, that he's actually the man who shot her. Um, this is still sort of a secret to her, which is kind of a nice thing to keep secret. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you want to further the relationship, yes, I, I would advise that. Yes. You're living with the man who made you blind. Um, Lee uh, wants to use Jenny as a bait to get Jeff. So Jeff would you know, come home and then um, 
they could nab him there. Um, but sadly, I think John Woo sort of announces that. I think it's better if the plot isn't the plot point isn't made spelled out so clearly because actually sort of say, oh, we can use you to get Jeff back to us. I think it would be better as a surprise. It's a minor complaint, but I do want to issue it right <laughs> here. Um, ultimately, Jeff Lee and Jenny sort of become this this team. It's not a love triangle by any means. It's definitely Jeff and Jenny in love, but um, Lee seems to um, come to Jeff's side. He sees him as a pretty good guy, and he wants to um, uh, protect him from Wang. Um, um, and Wang's men end up torturing and killing Chang, who I guess is a, he's a friend of uh, Jeff. Is that right, Chang? Do you, yeah, yeah. yeah like they're um, buddies. He dies, but he gives uh, some important information on the location, which is the church. To the church. Yeah. Uh, Wang's men come to kill Jeff, Jenny, and Lee, and there are a lot of men, a lot of guns, but fortunately, Jeff and Lee have access to enormous stockpiles as well. I mean, there's a howitzer <laughs> or something like that in there, a bazooka. They've got plenty of guns. There's a big shoot-up after... This is funny because it happens after Jeff has pledged that he won't kill again. <laughs> um, promises, promises. Um, Jeff... Uh, Jeff says to Lee at one point, it's great, let's get out of here, then you can come arrest me. <laughs> great dialogue. Um, yeah, so he's still going to be in trouble with the law, but he needs Lee's uh, help to, to save Jenny, basically. Um, they use gunpowder and a cigarette to cauterize a wound in there. That's what it was. Again, so they're back in the <laughs> church. It. I don't know why people want to do these surgeries in the church, but... Surely just press with a bit of, bit, press with a bit of gauze, wouldn't you? Surely, surely. Yeah. <laughs> Gunpowder. We very rarely use gunpowder in the hospital. It's just often not necessary. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of shooting. Lots of shooting. Some guys get <laughs> shot too many times. It seems like they've been dead. They come back up with another gun, get fresh wounds. Um, it's a lot of, lot of shooting. Um, his friend Sidney's in really tough shep, shape, but he brings Jeff some money, I guess. And then Wang is... Wang and his guys come of the church. That's really the, the the invaders who are trying to knock off Jeff and Lee and and you know Jenny. Be damned, she could kill in the in the in the melee as well. Wang's not really concerned about that. Um, and Wang himself is miraculously is still alive after he's been hit by cars, shot in a few different places. Um, so there's this big shootout at the church, which is essentially the um, the climax. Wang's guys kill um, Jeff's friend Sydney, so Jeff's mad. I, don't, I guess he wasn't <laughs> mad before, but he gets mad. Um, and the two men, Jeff and Lee, are oh, they just have this wonderful movement where they're just happy to be killing people side by side. They're kind of like back to back, just shooting guns at everyone and everything. There's a quick homage to Butch Cassidy where the two men are um, – is a still photo kind of moment. Just yeah. very much like the last moment in Butch Cassidy and it's a very clear tip of the hat to um, uh, that film. Um Mr. Wang has Jenny as a hostage, and Jeff gets shot in the eyes, and he can't see here. This is a wonderful moment where he says, please, if I die, use my corneas to restore Jenny's vision. <laughs> oh, what a guy. Um, they crawl towards each other, Jeff and, and Jenny. They're bl both blinded. They're in front of this church. Um, and uh, by the end, uh, the cop, D Donald Duck, that's Lee, sort of loves Mickey Mouse. That's Jeff uh, by the end. And then there's this little harmonica cue again to sort of key the fact that Jeff is probably not going to last long. And then all the sponsors are listed at the end. That was really curious to me. I don't know if what version of the film you saw, but you see all the sponsors. It was great. It was a very commercial kind of nod at the end of the film. Did you see that? Did you? Did you? I watched I it. I'm on... pretty sure I did. Yes, I think so. Isn't it? It's like, it's like, it's, it's like Sony. Yeah, and... Sony. Yeah. 
Samsung and or whoever or yeah exactly but it's it, kind of great list of uh, companies who yeah. presumably supplied um, <laughs> you know well I guess they must have supplied guns or bullets one of those yeah, two because it's pretty much the only bullets. props that were used in the film do you feel it's fair to suggest that this film is in some way a bit over the top <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this film is so over. I mean, it's, it's cartoonish. Tell me what it reminded me of. Yeah. Um, it's like two 13 year olds watched the David Fincher film, The Killer. Yeah. And they decided that was cool. Let's make a remake, you know, using their dad's video camera. Yeah. Um, but they decide they're going to they're going to do a rewrite, which mostly concentrates on just the cool bits, which is shooting, yeah. driving fast, more shooting, things blowing up, and yeah. more shooting. When, when I was 11 in, in my village, uh, my friends Alex and Kim were planning to make like a spy film. We were like 11. Um, so Alex's daddy had an eight millimeter film oh, camera. Oh, nice. Um, and they all, we didn't have a script or anything like that. It didn't have a story, but they had a title and they had made a poster. Oh. The film that they were going to make was called Kill or Be Killed. <laughs> oh. Uh, which is kind of like a variation on Live and Let Die. Yes. And they'd like, they'd hand drawn and like colored in this incredible poster. And it had like people shooting each other in a car, driving off a cliff and explosions. I mean, just incredible. Yeah. And basically, John Woo's The Killer from 1989 is that film. Oh, your friends. Oh, he stole it from your friends. It's exactly. It's more, it could easily be called Kill or Be Killed. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it, uh, did I enjoy this film? Yes, I did. <laughs> but it's not a serious film, is it? I mean, it's just, it's like, um, what I wrote in my notes is this is a video game. Yeah. You know, and that's really kind of, you know, what it's like. Interestingly, I looked up John Woo did produce a video game in oh, 2007. Yes, that's right. Uh, called Stranglehold. Okay. So, um, you know, it feels like a video game. That's kind of where it belongs. Yeah. I think it's a blast. But if this film is over the top. Yes. That's, yeah, it's subtle to, su to merely suggest that it's over the top. I will declare <laughs> this film is way, way, way over the top. Um, and it's it's strange. It feels like a Hallmark. Uh, I don't know if you know about Hallmark, the Hallmark Channel here in the United States. They make cards, the greeting cards, but they have a television um, network that... Well, um, the obvious way to extend your business if you sell greetings cards <laughs> is set up a television network. Yes. yes, obviously. And it's just these, you know, these schmaltzy, sort of cheesy, warm-hearted um, films for your grandparents. Um, and it, it felt like this was like a Hallmark musical of just unfathomable violence and interminable <laughs> montages. There were just so many montages. Um so, and I thought it was a comedy. I really did. So uh, I'm guilty of seeing this one as a comedy. And maybe you um, thought that uh, the Fincher feature was a comedy. Um, it's just um, it's an odd blend of these just ultra violent action scenes. But it it has something that the Fincher feature does not. And that is these slow um, dialogue scenes. There, ah. there are these moments in between where you actually do get some of the exposition or some of the motivations that I felt were lacking in the Fincher film. Um, you do, there's a, there's more of a mixture of pacing, I guess, in this film. It's, I mean, it yeah. is over the top. There's lots of shooting. There's lots of violence. And those are sort of these amped up moments, but there also are these, you know, they're kind of inappropriate in the sense that there's all this sweetness between these two characters and maybe these three characters who are really not the men, especially just, they're, you know, they're not that admirable or anything like that. They've just been killing people for an hour and a half straight, but you get, you get the friendship that comes out of that. So it's, it's, it has this interaction with other humans that, yeah. that the feature feature does not have. So I did appreciate that. I mean, it's kind of, it's like a sort of a melodrama, isn't it? It's, it's the, yeah. the flavor of it. It's kind of gets very melodramatic, yeah. but it's, you know, not, 
shy about going for these, you know, really, really massive emotional moments, isn't yeah. it? No. It's you know, it's it's not subtle. It's yeah, it's trying very hard to pull on your on your heartstrings. Yeah. Um, in the same way that I came out claiming that the the Fincher feature uh, is a comedy. Yeah. I th- I think this film I would classify it as a dance movie. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, really, it's kind of, so much of what I remember about it is the choreography. Right. It's so many kind of, it's guys jumping in the air 10 feet, isn't it? It's kind of stunts and falls and explosions and more stunts. Yeah. And then kind okay. of your people kind of leaping out balletically while shooting with both hands. Yeah. Um, that's kind of, that's sort of what the film is. <clears throat> uh, I guess the, you know, the, the change of pace is necessary to get from one set piece to another. Yeah. But I'm sure, you know, the film has largely been made with the intention that you will go home remembering these big shootout yeah, set pieces. Definitely. And the body the body count is high and many body it's especially high because many people die and then come back to life and then die again <laughs> once or twice more. So it makes the body count super high. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, this is one of the ways that it reminds me of a video game. It's like um, so many people get shot, but the bodies sort of disappear, don't they? Because yeah. you know, in a video game, the graphics would really slow down if there were 200 dead bodies yeah. on the floor. So they just get <laughs> erased after a few minutes. And it's the same in this film. Hundreds of people get shot and then they just sort of disappear yeah. and a hundred more people turn up and also get shot. If, if, it's a, if it's a dance film, it's bullet ballet, basically. Yeah. That is the word bullet palais, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, nobody can be shot with one bullet in this film either. No, no. So if you're going to kill somebody, you have to kill them with at least 25 bullets. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious that the suitcase that Chow Yun-Fat gets given in the very first suit, um, very first scene of the film yeah. only contains one gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's only going to do to kill half a guy, surely. Yeah, you're giving um, a guy who has 150 guns, you're giving him the <laughs> one that he needs for that job. It's wonderful. It's hmm, what to get for the man who has everything yes (laughs) um i have one question which is i don't know how the church works in this film yeah um basically it's only ever used as a venue for killers to arrange jobs (laughs) or for for like last ditch standoffs don't they ever have mass i don't think so I mean, should they, there should be like you know a few people queuing up for confession or something. When did the choir rehearse? You know, isn't yeah. there like you know a, a priest or at least a caretaker or somebody? I said, my question is, who is lighting all of those candles? Yeah, exactly, that's a fire. It is fire hazard. Fire hazard. There's, there's no one in the church but someone who has, has just lit two thousand candles yeah. and left immediately. <laughs> um, it's, it's Barry Lyndon in there, isn't it? It's incredible the sheer number of blooming candles. I wasn't sure if we ever saw a pastor or a priest or um, any. Any any employee, you're right. It seems like it was just Jeff's hideout. There is like one one choir boy who turns up during the final shootout, mm-hmm. makes the sign of the cross, and then leaves. Isn't there? I think <laughs> that that is it. That is it. So not sure how the church is doing there. Having seen the film with your 2023 eyes, mm. uh, did you enjoy it in the same way that you did in 1991 when Prima showed it to you? I in in 1991, I loved it because I didn't see all of it. I think even at an hour, this is about an hour and a half, wasn't it? Or maybe an hour and 40 minutes. It wasn't, you know, it's not a super long yeah, film. It's not, it's, it's not a long it's, film. It's, a, it's an acceptable length, but I saw probably 10 or 20 minutes back then. And I, thought <laughs> it, I, I went home just so happy and I was laughing all the way. And I really thought it was a comedy from what I saw. Um, I don't think it, for me, it doesn't sustain the full length of the film just because it really is one shooting set piece after another. And they become less and less believable, I suppose. So I, it, it didn't engage me in that way. I wasn't that engaged with the, um, 
the the human contact, the actors, the characters. I wasn't that engaged with them. So if I could have seen it either at really, really rapid pace, which would have been fun because then all those bullets and would have been flying super fast. If I could, <laughs> if I could play it at two, you know, two times speed maybe or even three times, I probably would have enjoyed it as much. But um, I, I just for me, there's not enough story to really sustain my interest for – for an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes or whatever it was. Um, I, th- I think a lot of the film looks like it is undercranked. I think it's already playing at one and a half yeah, times speed. It, yes, you're right. <laughs> there are a lot of scenes where people are running a little bit unnaturally too yeah, fast, it, I think, yeah. or like shooting or or kind of jumping just you know, faster than is humanly possible. So I, th- yeah. I think I think it's already on one and a half speed. Wow. So, so you, once you yeah. double it, that's it. You're at three times speed at least. Yeah, but that would be great. You could You could watch it at three speed and see... See how it goes, yeah. Because again, it's not; it's the dialogue's not super important. It's more about these connections they make between shooting people, killing people. These wonderful human connections they have before ending human <laughs> life. Um, so it's I, again, I would I would kind of recommend this just as a lark. I think it was fun. I, it's not something that I'll probably watch again in my lifetime, but. Um, um, it's an early John Woo film, so it's interesting in that way because he really developed, I think, as a director fast. His next couple of films are, you know, are much stronger, I think. And uh, yeah, um, but you can see the beginnings of it. I think the nod to Scorsese is kind of funny because, especially if you think of it as a dance film, because um, <laughs> it almost feels like it's just violence for violence' sake at some point. And, and I, this is kind of my knock on a lot of Scorsese films is I think that uh, there's a lot of reliance on violence in order to tell the story and I just don't think that's necessary um, and this one just takes that too I think he's like pushing it to an extreme um, which is interesting but not my kind of film at this age I don't think I don't think I liked violence that anymore when I saw it first you know 30 something years ago but um, um, it does it does strike me how violent these films are both the, yeah the, I mean it's, the it's kind films. of so over the top of the violence it's yeah. kind of cartoonish it's, isn't it exactly it's the, yeah the, the people are, you know, people are still able to like you say, get up and do more shooting after they've been shot twelve times. <laughs> yes. and it's it's, it, it's uh, you know, again, it's a kind of a superhero film before there were superhero. Yeah, films and you wouldn't want to be the sponsor. Silly, you, yeah. you wouldn't want to be the bullet sponsor for this film because your bullets aren't <laughs> performing very well. I mean, they should be killing <laughs> with greater yes. reliance. You know. <laughs> so Chow Yun Fat think, ah, oh, I used the wax bullets. Shouldn't I? I should use the metal ones. Ah, oh, no. Um, okay, well, yeah, good fun. Is there is there tremendous narrative depth in this film? There kind of is not. No. Is there a lesson for the screenwriter in this film? I'm not sure that there is. Insofar as well, you know, this is a fun film. You know, it 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 knows what it's doing. Yeah, and it knows what its audience wants it to concentrate on. Yeah, and it's a writer director um, who knew what he wanted to do. I think this is the film that John Woo wanted to make at that point in his life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it was the film that 13 year old me wanted to make. <laughs> <laughs> And dreamt of. Um, okay, well, I think we've seen enough of these two films that at least we can play uh, Who Am I? Oh, yes. Let's, let's play that and see if we can figure out where you and I sit in the, in the, in the, the bullet ballet. I know exactly where I sit or dance. <laughs> I know where I dance. <laughs> Who am I? This week, I'm, uh, this week I'm Jenny. I'm a blind oh. yes. I'm a blind musician of questionable talent who can't act and can't really see either of these two films. <laughs> She's got yeah. She has very little to work with. She does have to pretend to be blind, which is uh, an achievement. I think it's definitely an achievement. But it's not yeah. It's not an acting role that uh, 
asks too much of her or um, um, really gives her a lot to work with. So um, I'm Jenny. See, I, w- I would love to say that I was Chow Young Fat because I do think he is such a tremendously oh, cool guy. Yeah, he's very just, cool. And even when he's wearing his crazy disguise of slightly grey hair and a moustache, oh, yeah. he's still, you know, just so cool. Yeah. Um, not me. I'm not. But yeah, exactly. I, but I'm being realistic. I know I am. I am not as cool as Chow Yun Fat, and and I never will be. Uh, instead, I I reckon either I am probably one of those perplexed airport car hire people oh. in, in the Fincher feed. People yes. handing out car keys to somebody named after a sitcom character, yeah. and not quite understanding what's going on. Yeah, I could see that. Or the other thing is, you know, happily there are doctors, like you pointed out in that John Woo film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like there's that scene where they're resuscitating the girl, you know, very calmly in yes. absolute silence. Some good doctoring in these films. Yeah, um, in that film, yeah. But yeah, you know, sadly, that is nothing like the noisy chaos of a real, uh, a real resuscitation. Yeah. I, feel, I basically, if I, I mean, they're all being really quiet because they don't want to get shot, aren't they? Yeah. In that film. <laughs> yes. If I was in that scene, I would just get shot immediately because I would not be able to keep my mouth shut in that situation. Yeah. It's this is a these well, both of these films really, but the killer especially is a film in need of a good anesthetist. <laughs> so I, I was hoping you were kind of leaning towards being a character who's actually not even in the film, but you were there with the anesthesia, with the medicine, with the calculations <laughs> to get these guys some pain relief. <gasps> or at least some ear defenders is what they need, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Audiologist would have been good in this film, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's enough death and destruction. Uh, let's, see, let's see if we can draw the two films together. Sure. Uh, see whether we can, yeah, uh, find some parallels. So we so it's a, um, we've got two different looks at the assassin genre uh, tonight. One, so and I wrote in my notebook here one straight. And mm-hmm. one kind of ironic, mm. but but which is which? <laughs> you know, or maybe they're both kind of ironic. I mean, I so the John Woo film kind of does sort of play it straight, but like you say, you know what? It it kind of plays like a comedy. It has this endless supply of faceless goons jumping from balconies and running into gunfire. Yeah. Um, and I, I still, I reckon I would classify that Fincher film as a comedy, even though I didn't laugh and it took me two days to realize, <laughs> I think basically these two films back to back, they do sort of underline how absurd the whole genre is. Yeah. I think, you know, it's not, is it possible to make a straight assassin film? The notion of, of an assassin, you know, like a real assassin is kind of ludicrous every now and then like real assassins turn up in the news yeah. and. And they are never cool like this. No. Clearly, the ones who turn up in the news are the ones who've been caught. But they're always kind of useless chances. Yeah. Who've watched too many films and think that they are Chow Yun Fat when clearly they're not. Yeah. I mean, real assassins, I think, probably not really like this. Yeah. Although, you know, well, you, your friend is in the CIA. You should probably ask him. I don't know anybody who's a real assassin. Yeah. Oh, God. Has he killed anyone? I've got to think about that. <gasps> can't ask him. I can't ask him. That's too obvious. <laughs> oh, get him on. Get, get him in on the pod and we'll ask him together. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think <laughs> you're right. I think the average real life assassin is probably someone down on his luck willing to take not enough money to actually end someone's life. That takes us. That's a certain character. It ain't, my, it ain't Michael Fassbender. That's for sure, right? <laughs> Guy's doing pretty well for himself. He's got a family now. I mean, um, I, I think there is this romance of that 
character in popular film. There's romance of violence. I think that's what both of these films do, and I'm always uncomfortable with it because I think if you rely too much on violence for storytelling, you're just not really doing a good service to humanity. Eeks. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I think maybe that's an old person attitude. I'm certainly, as I get older, I have less and less um, a stomach for the violence in films. Um, so I think they both have that, and they're, you know, that. They deal with violence quite flippantly, both of them, honestly. Um, and I think with it, it's almost better the, 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 the John Woo way, which is just taking it over the top. So it, it becomes yep. so unreal that it, it can be funny or it can be um, heartwarming, I guess, or a hallmark, <laughs> a hallmark soap opera of a film. Um, as opposed to there's some scary stuff in Fincher's film, which and, and Fincher's put some really scary things out there i mean seven some of those images from seven i still wake up to oh. to seeing so i think um I, I i don't know that's doing much service to humanity or to the film industry but it certainly makes money so um there's that i think you know, on the very superficial level both films have protagonists who use tv alter ego names oh yes <laughs> so I, I think that was an interesting connection and uh um, the the nod to Scorsese is always yeah it is interesting to me that uh, he would um, dedicate it so that's that's IMDb rumor I can't even ver- verify that because I didn't see that in the credits but it, I don't I forget if the credits were all English or not but um, I think uh, the version I saw the credits are all Chinese yeah all Chinese so, so I yeah. didn't yeah I wouldn't have picked that up in in Chinese but um, yeah they're um, they're both called the Killer. That, that's a connection. <laughs> that, you're right. You're right. They, they, oh, my goodness. You're right. I, th- I do agree that they both say – what I wrote in my notes was that these both these films both say something about how cheap human life can be. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, I mean, it, it's certainly in the in the John Woo film, the, the deaths are incredibly cheap. Nobody yeah. thinks about the guys being shot. Yep. You know, they have – you know, they are – they turn up you know, and are shot within frames of arriving on, on, on uh, camera. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the, at least there is some sort of there is some meditation, there is some reflection in both films. More in the Fincher film, I suppose. Yeah. Fassbinder, Fassbinder uh, he does kind of think about what he does. Mm-hmm. He's a bit like a wildlife photographer, isn't he? Sort of sitting in a hide, yeah. waiting to take that one photograph, and so he necessarily has a lot of time alone with his thoughts, mm-hmm. and we hear the thoughts. Oh, we do. Although I would argue the thoughts are different to what we really see on screen. Yeah. Um, the there was one one way that the um, the Fincher feature triumphs over the Wu film, and it has. I do think it has kind of more respect for women in a way. Just about insofar as Fincher is happy to make one of the killers a woman, yeah, and she is oft in in much the same way that the men are. Whereas in the John Wu film, you know, there's only one woman character, and she is basically a prop, isn't she? Yeah. She's there to be either cared for or driven around yeah. or sort of led led by the hand. She's like a walking motivational cat poster for the characters of the film, isn't it? Telling them, yeah, you can do it. This is the prize you could win. Yeah. Um, so there, at, at least, you know, Fincher's film seems a little bit more modern in that regard. Yeah, uh, Tilda Swinton gets sort of equitable treatment. She gets killed just the way everyone else gets killed. All the men get killed. She gets killed the same way. So I guess that's equitable. That's a fair yeah. treatment <laughs> fair treatment of the woman character in this film. Um, I, I want to pick up on what you said about the the monologue and the, that that those words meaning something completely different from what we see on screen. And, and, and I would just say that by the po- 
by later points in the film, he's said so many things and you've stopped listening that I think it loses its effect. It's just that <laughs> that classic uh, idea that, you know, what's, it's what we see sometimes paired with what we hear that really has the effect in film. So by the time, he's just used too many words by that point. So I'm not really focusing on what he's saying anymore because it is repetitive. You just sort of get this idea that, okay, he's saying the same thing again and again and he's saying it a lot. Um, so those were, a lot of those moments were kind of lost on me. Um, I think the dialogue in uh, the Wu Shu is um, it, it's it's quite trite, honestly. It's just not you know it's not it's not <laughs> it's not profound conversations, but they sort of do tell you exactly where the characters are, and um, I think they're equally meaningless, but they sort of have this meaning because you relate to the characters more as opposed to just hearing this character telling you all of his thoughts and telling you all of his feelings. Um, and again, as I said, by, by the, the end of the Fincher film, um, you just, you're just not really focusing on those words anymore. I wasn't anyway. So, um, I think that the, the dialogue is kind of, it's, there's an interesting comparison in dialogue and how it's used between the two films. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Too many assassins. Too many assassins. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot. It's, it's a bit much for me. And you could say that maybe the Will Show could be called the killers because there are kind of a couple of people doing killing, whereas um, the, the, the Fincher film should remain in the singular, the killer. Or maybe, the, the, as you said, the killer the, killing other killers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could have been another title. <laughs> um uh, well, uh, before we put a bullet in the head of this particular yeah. episode, we should <laughs> we should also talk about what else has been playing uh, at this theatre. I'm I'm very excited to talk about what's playing at my theatre this good. week because oh, happily uh, this week uh, in the spirit of the pod. Uh, I'm happy to say uh, we watched a Tom Hanks film. Yes, thank you. At and last. That came, yeah, that's organic. I didn't feel like I forced it out or <laughs> one of you were just dropping So names. there we go. The algorithm can catch up with uh, Tom Hanks yet again. So we watched The Terminal, the Spielberg oh, film from yeah. 2004. Yeah. Oh, um, uh, written by uh, Sasha Chavezzi, uh, who directed the Hitchcock film with Anthony Hopkins that was made a few years ago. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and Jeff Nathanson. Uh, who wrote Catch Me If You Can? Have you seen that? Uh, that's, a, that's one of the you know, really good Spielberg picture. Yeah. Um, he also wrote the script for the recentish Lion King remake, so you can't oh. win them all. But okay. Um, have, have you seen the Terminal? I haven't. I haven't. Uh, basically, Tom Hanks plays more or less Mr. Bean for the first half of the film. It's like a really broad comedy. Yeah. Um, but Stanley Tucci is in it. Who is such a tremendously watchable. Uh, actor yeah. and i tell you what it's all the whole film just happens in an airport terminal and the extras work in this film is just exemplary so okay. many scenes with such a huge volume oh, yeah, of sure. extras in the background that's a real achievement it's schmaltzy Catherine zeta jones turns up for a, like an unnecessary and artificial romantic subplot but you know what we uh we enjoyed it uh, so uh, the terminal yeah, it's kind of aged okay it's still fine it's okay and that's before artificial intelligence would have been playing some of those extras. So they were actually <laughs> yes, probably exactly beings, back right? when they were played by actual people. Ah. There is one thing I wrote down in my little notebook after watching the terminal, which is that Stanley Tucci, he is like the security boss at the at the uh, the, the airport, yeah. and his outgoing superior tells him um, as they're touring the airport, he tells him uh, compassion, 
that's what this country is all about. And that, that line really stood out to me because I was wondering, wow. God, I hope that's still true in 2023. Do you think it is? Uh, it takes place in the United States? It does, yes. No. <laughs> no. I, but there, there, isn't the real story Charles de Gaulle in Paris or... Oh, um, it's based on a true story, correct? It all happens in New York in the in the Spielberg yeah, of, film. Of course, it does. So that uh, doesn't show much compassion for the man who, in real life, lived in an airport in another country. Ah, uh, they mistold his story. So I'd say no compassion. No, twenty twenty three. No, no, no. <laughs> what well, what's been playing at your theater? Boy, I went super local. Um, it's a film called Nice People. Not a great title, to be honest. I with like you. it um, already. It's not gonna. Not. This is a film that won't hurt anyone. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> this was made by some Portlanders here. An actor who I worked with briefly on a short film. Um, he wrote this. It's it's sort of um, suffers from the same chapter problem that the, the mm-hmm. killer does. It's actually probably five. I've lost count. Maybe five short films that are sort of p- vaguely pieced together, maybe just by location. Um, And they started this film, I think they said 2017 or 18. So it also hasn't aged very well because it's um, pre-COVID, pre-Me Too movement, a little bit too much toxic masculinity that doesn't really work in the film. So it was very odd to see it. that they. And and again, this is probably less than a $50,000 film, maybe even 25,000 bucks or something like that. Um, So just, uh, yeah. You know, I like to support the locals. Um, it's never yeah. going to play in a theater anywhere. I don't think they're going to have any run with it. Um, and my takeaway was make sure you have a writer. I don't know why people don't get writers. I mean, he's an actor, and he and an acquaintance wrote it, and it just didn't have a lot of story structure, and it really just pieced a couple of films together. So it's like watching – it was really kind of like watching five or six short films. I didn't really feel like they connected very well other than that some of the same locations – um, appear, but it was good to see good crowd. Good crowd. They had um, four or five sold out showings of maybe two hundred people each or something like that. So good. good yeah. Well, God, they've nearly made their budget back on that. Then I guess. Yes, yeah, they made some. They, I don't know if they actually made any money on it, but um, they definitely made a film and got it into an uh, in front of an audience, into a theater or a gallery. Um, oddly, though, when you think about it, in like four or five years in the making, something like that. So wow. Oh, the so first one is the hardest, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and sometimes you, Until just the, have you to... make the second one, then it turns out the second one is the hardest, isn't it? And then you make the third one, it turns out, oh, actually, no, the third one is the hardest. They're all hard, <laughs> aren't they, God? Uh, so. Good for them. You have to, have to make sure you wave your business card under their nose if you see them again. Say, ah, oh, about that film you made. <laughs> you need a writer. <laughs> Maybe. I think I've got some other contacts here who are super talented, too. But it's just, I mean, on, on the one hand, great to see some locals actually getting a film made and. We all know how hard that is to do, so it's great to have them, you know, present it, have be able to talk about it, and show it to a very adoring crowd. Honestly, they're yeah. very supportive. So good. Oh, well, good for them. Good yeah. for them. Right, just time to do the socials. Uh, if you have enjoyed the pod, we are on Instagram. We are at Two Real Cinema Club. Uh, you can read the blog at tworealcinemaclub.com, Comment on our YouTube channel or email us at two real cinema club at gmail.com let us know what you think ask questions correct our mistakes offer us sponsorship yeah. and uh please tell your friends about us if you can leave a review if you can it helps us out next time what are we watching next time i hope i get this correctly um <laughs> we're watching maestro 
Yeah. The film about Leonard Bernstein um, should be coming out in the States um, this week, Thanksgiving week. I think it's the 23rd of, or 23rd or 24th of November. We're going to pair that with a musical from the 1950s, West Side Story, which features the music of Leonard Bernstein, who is the subject of the film, Maestro, I believe it um, is really a Bradley Cooper labor of love. I think um, he plays Leonard Bernstein. He looks like Leonard Bernstein in the film, so we're looking forward to that. And I think we will have a special guest right third reel on the Two Reel Cinema Club. I don't know if I want to announce that just yet, just to... but we should have another confirmation. Voice. Yeah, we're waiting confirmation, but we will have a guest who is, we're trying to get her on, oh, her, oops. We're trying to get them on an <laughs> annual appearance schedule, so. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, only if we can afford them, though. Yes. Right, thanks, as always, for listening. I'm very glad that you introduced next week's film, because I'm never sure whether it's Bernstein or Bernstein. Oh, yeah. Um, and I probably still won't be here next week. Uh, <laughs> join us next time for some musical fun and a little bit less shooting, I hope. Uh, always a pleasure. See you next time. Thanks for joining us.